The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 7, a meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me, or have plundered my enemy without cause, Let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. So the congregation of the peoples shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity within me. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My defense is of God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. He made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head and his violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. All right, we're going to be in Leviticus 23 verses 9 through 14 today, continuing on with the feasts of the Lord. And um, for anybody that is online that, you know, we have these both in video form and on iPad form or whatever you call it, where you listen to it, but you don't watch. Um, I'm a little sick today, so I'm sorry about my voice and uh, I apologize about that. But uh, I hope that the uh, message will at least bless you despite the uh, gravelly voice. Okay, Leviticus 23, 9 through 14. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hen. You shall eat neither bread, nor parched grain, nor fresh grain, until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. And as I've done through these Leviticus sermons, I'd like to take you just very quickly through the book of Hebrews and read, just in case somebody clicks onto one of these sermons, is confused about the law of Moses. 
being something that we're required to observe today, and I mean any of it. People say you have to tithe. That's a part of the law of Moses. It's never repeated in the New Testament. People say you have to observe the feasts of the Lord. You have to do this and you have to do that. You can't eat pork. You have to observe a Saturday Sabbath. These things are explicitly stated as done in the book of Hebrews. Here's what it says from chapter 7 and um, verse 12. We'll go there first. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. Okay, you had the old covenant, the law of Moses. There was the priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. Jesus Christ is not of Aaron. He is of Judah. And so it's a new priesthood, and there is now a change of the law as well. And then it goes on in verse 18 of chapter 7. For on the one hand, there is an annulling, annulling of the former commandments. Speaking of the law of Moses, it is annulled. If you don't know what annulled is, it means that it's done. It's over, it is done. There's no precept from the law of Moses that we are required to be obedient to. The annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. What an indictment against the law of Moses. It's weak and it's unprofitable. We go on in chapter 8 and verse 13 in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. It's annulled, it's obsolete. Okay, and then in chapter 10, It says in verse 9, he takes away the first, meaning the law of Moses, it is taken away, that he may establish the second. It is annulled, it is obsolete, it is taken away. And then, after having said that, we can go to Colossians. I try not to put that first, because if I do, somebody's bound to say, well, that's the Apostle Paul, and he's been smoking the wrong type of cigarette or something. You know, people will diminish the writings of Paul all the time. And yet he is the apostle to the Gentiles. He's the one that wrote doctrine for the church age. This is where we get our doctrine. He says in verse 14 of Colossians chapter 2, having wiped out, wiped out means to erase, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, meaning the law of Moses. It was against us. It wasn't for us, which was contrary to us. And he is taken out of the way having nailed it to the cross. The symbolism is that Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross. He died on the cross. The law of Moses died when he died because it is finished. It is fulfilled. It is done. So anybody that tells you you need to observe this precept or that precept of the law of Moses, you tell them, out of my way, heretic Henry, I'm going to follow Christ. I'm going to be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to stand in his goodness. Okay, so we've read our sermon verses today. Today we return to the Feast of Firstfruits. It is a small number of verses, but it points to the second half of the greatest event in all of human history. As it is a part of the law of Moses, we know that it is fulfilled, and all sound Christian scholars will admit this. It is one of the spring feasts of the Lord. And the agreement is that all, all of the spring feasts are fulfilled completely and entirely in Christ's first advent. The disagreement on the feasts of the Lord in relation to the fulfillment doesn't arrive until we come to the fall feasts, known to most as trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. It is best to not get too ahead of oneself in analyzing the Bible for others, because whatever I say would then fill the hearer's mind with presuppositions about what is being said when we finally arrive at whatever passage I previously referred to. However, in the case of the feasts of the Lord, 
There should be no problem with coming to the fall feasts with a presupposition that they are already fulfilled. And so, as I have done several times already, especially when we looked at the Day of Atonement passage from Leviticus 16, I would like to again remind you that the law of Moses is fulfilled in Christ. This is made explicit time and time again in the New Testament. I just read you four or five instances of it. There are plenty more. As the feasts of the Lord, both spring and fall, are a part of the law of Moses, then they by default must be fulfilled. If they are not, then Christ didn't fulfill the law. If so, then it is not fulfilled. And if this is so, then Christ is not the end of the law for all who believe. And if this is so, what are we doing in church? We should be in a synagogue somewhere. If the law is not fulfilled in Christ, then we of all men are to be the most pitiable. But such is not the case. We are not to be pitied, but emulated. We have a hope which is grounded in the truth of God as is revealed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We have the hope of glory and we have the assurance of salvation. Praise God for what he has done in Jesus. Our text verse comes from the same text verse we've had for the last three sermons, and it'll be the same one through the Feast of the Lord, Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. So let no one judge you in food or drink, speaking of the dietary laws, or regarding a festival, meaning the feasts of the Lord, or a new moon or Sabbath. All of these, all of these are done, he says, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Paul tells us that the feasts of the Lord are mere shadows of the true substance which is found in the person and work of Christ. Isaiah wrote of what was coming in Christ, including a hint at what would be fulfilled concerning the feast of first fruits. The shadow would find its substance. Here's what he says in Isaiah 53, verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light and be satisfied. My righteous servant will justify many by the knowledge of himself, and he will bear their iniquities. That's the World English Bible. For that verse, I switched from the usual preaching Bible that I use, the New King James Version, to the World English Bible. The New King James Version, like the older King James Version, is based on a source text which dropped out some rather important information. The oldest copy of that text, the Masoretic text, comes from more than 1,000 years after the work of Christ, and it was a text maintained by the Jews. There are several places where it was rather apparent that these Masoretes purposefully manipulated the text to hide something wonderful, to hide Christ. Isaiah 53, verse 11 is one of those passages. Mark that down and go compare the incorrect reading of the King James Version to what is corrected in the modern Bibles. And how do we know the correction is correct? Because in 1947, a group of documents was found in Qumran, Israel, which predate the coming of Christ. Included in these documents, now known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, was the great Isaiah Scroll. In Isaiah 53, verse 11, lo and behold, the words which match the Septuagint, another copy of the Old Testament written in Greek, and also which predates the coming of Christ, says the same thing. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light and be satisfied. The direct object in both the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint is the word light. Something magnificent, symbolized by the word light, would happen to the servant after the suffering of his soul. It is in this, and not the suffering, in which satisfaction would come. 
the suffering would lead to the light. What was Isaiah saying? He was saying the same thing that the Bible has said from the very beginning. It is something which is said again in a different way in today's verses. What we are to see in these six verses of Leviticus 23, what are we? Something wonderful, something filled with hope for fallen man, something directly from the mind of God, which points to the future work of Christ Jesus. This is what we are to see. These things are all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have two thoughts for you today. The first is that which is first. It's verses 9 through 14. Verse 9, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The words given here are identical to verse 1, and they have not been spoken since verse 1. In other words, there was the mandated weekly Sabbath, which was considered its own feast. Then there was the introduction of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But both of these fell under the original introduction of verse 1. Now a new introduction is given. Why would this be? The answer is found in what the following verses proclaim. As we saw, the Sabbath, the Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread had already been proclaimed to the people of Israel back in the book of Exodus. They were simply re-explained to the people here in chapter 23 and defined as feasts of the Lord. What will now be proclaimed is not only a new feast of the Lord, not specifically mandated before, but it is also a feast which could not be observed during their time in the wilderness. The Sabbath, Passover, and unleavened bread were feasts to be held anywhere and at any time. Such is not the case with the first fruits. Israel was on their way to Canaan. Their expected arrival was yet ahead. That their time in the wilderness would last 40 years was merely a result of coming disobedience. Had that not occurred, they would have gone into Canaan in a very short amount of time, and the very next year, at approximately this same time, they would be observing their first year of these feasts. This was the intent, but it would not actually happen for a full 40 years. Despite this, it is a feast for those dwelling in the land when the ground was set to produce its spring harvest. Verse 10, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land, Kitabo u el haaretz. There is assurance in these words, when you come into the land. It signifies arrival, sure and guaranteed. For Israel, this was their immediate expectation. For them, there was expected to be a short time of preparation, and then they would boldly march in and receive their inheritance. That the amount of time until their arrival would extend beyond the lives of almost every adult in the camp is of no matter to the Lord. He had said it would come to pass, and so it shall. If a time of refinement, chastisement, and learning was necessary for these people before they entered, so be it. But enter they would. Verse 10 continues, which I give to you. Asher ani noten lakem. The implication here is that this is the Lord's land. One cannot bestow what he does not possess. Further, as the owner, giving it to Israel signifies that it is Israel's inheritance. Conditions for dwelling in the land accompany the grant, and if those conditions are not met, that negative results are also stated. But the land is for Israel. When they are obedient, the land is theirs, and they may dwell in it. When they are disobedient, the land is theirs, and they may not dwell in it. But it is the Lord's land, and it is set apart for Israel. When Israel's in the land, they were to observe this feast to the Lord. As a point of note, 
This is the third of only four times in the book of Leviticus that a command is given in a prospective manner. It is something expected only in the future when the people have arrived in their promised inheritance. The four times this type of command are given are found in Leviticus 14, verse 34, when speaking of the Lord putting a leprous plague in a house. Again, in Leviticus 19, verse 23, when the people enter the land and plant fruit trees, they were to be considered as uncircumcised for three years. Then this note in Leviticus 23 concerning the Feast of first fruits. And finally, in Leviticus 25, verse 2, will come the mandate of the seven-year Sabbath of the land. Verse 10 continues, and reap its harvest. Uketsartem et ketsirah, and shall reap the harvest. As Israel was to be an agrarian society, their lives would be centered on the annual cycle of planting and harvesting. The Lord is anticipating this and directing them according to such a schedule. At the time of reaping, the feast of the Lord would be celebrated. The word reap here is katsar. It means to cut down. It can be used figuratively in the sense of being discouraged or mourning or being troubled and so on. At a harvest, one may mourn the labor, but it is a mourning which leads to joy. That which results from the labors is what one actually anticipates. The word harvest, katsir, is derived from that previous word, katsar. It is that which grows and which is expected to be reaped. Even more, what is later stated about this reaping is that it is at the very beginning of the harvest. In Deuteronomy 16, while explaining terms of the Feast of Weeks, the next feast to be celebrated after first fruits, we will read this. Deuteronomy 16, verse 9, you shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. This then is the very commencement of the harvest, the first of that which is reaped. Verse 10 continues, then you shall bring a sheaf. Here the word translated as sheaf is omer. It is a word which carries two distinct meanings. The first is a specific dry measure of something. In this case, it would be grain. If this is the intent, then it is the same measure as the manna, which was stored up in the golden pot, which was recorded in Exodus 16. And omer is one-tenth of the standard measure known as an ephah. The second meaning of omer is simply a sheaf. This is the meaning which is found in Deuteronomy 24, verse 19, and also in Ruth 2, verse 7. There are good scholarly commentaries which favor either meaning of the word. Jewish commentaries state that this is a set measure. Flavius Josephus agrees with this, saying that it is a measure which has been dried, beaten, and had the barley purged from the bran. Because of the symbolism being pictured, I would personally agree with the translation which says a sheaf. It is a single sheaf cut down, the first of the harvest. But more, this is barley, not wheat. Barley is the first crop to ripen each year. Barley is the crop of the poor people, being a lesser grain than wheat. It is known as the crop of hairy ears because of its hairy appearance. The word barley in Hebrew is seorah, which is closely related to the word se'ar, or hair. Hair in the Bible indicates an awareness of things, especially that of sin. The goat, for example, which is used in Leviticus for the sin offering is known as a sa'ir. We have an awareness of sin in the hairy goat sin offering. In Numbers, there is a type of person known as a Nazarite. This is someone who made a vow or was consecrated to the Lord. During the time of that vow, they were never to cut their hair. Samson was a Nazarite from birth, as was Samuel and John the Baptist. Paul took a Nazarite vow in the book of Acts. 
The hair on their head was a reminder of their state before the Lord, just as the hairy goat is a reminder of sin. It is a man's place to be aware. Verse 10 continues, of the first fruits of your harvest. The word translated as first fruits is reshit. It means the beginning, the first, the chief, the finest, and so on. It is the very first word which is used in all of Scripture. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashemayim ve'et ha'aretz. Bereshit, or in the beginning. It comes from the same root as rosh, which is the first in time, in place, order, or rank. It is the principal thing. In this verse, the term reshit, or first fruits, is singular. Verse 10 continues to the priest, el ha'kohen, unto the priest. It is to the priest ministering before the Lord that this beginning offering was to be brought. Verse 11, he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord. Without being argumentative as to whether it's a set dry measure or whether it's a sheaf, but we're going to go with the sheaf because that's correct. The priest was to take the omer and wave it before the Lord. The Lord was to personally see the waving of this sheaf. It was to be waved there in his presence. The word translated as wave here is nuf. It gives the sense of to quiver. Thus, it means to vibrate up and down or to rock to and fro. To get the idea of what the priest does, the word means elsewhere to wave or to beckon or to sprinkle or to rub or to saw and so on. Each of these implies motion and vibrancy. Verse 11 continues to be accepted on your behalf. The words here are more appropriately translated as so that you may be accepted. The offering was made not for the offering to be accepted, but for the acceptance of those offering. The word your is plural, speaking of all of the people of the land. Verse 11 continues, on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. One of the greatest divisions of interpretation of this entire feast is answering the question, excuse me, what Sabbath is being referred to here? The answer was a dividing line between the Sadducees and the Pharisees of the Second Temple Times. The vast majority of commentators agree with the Pharisees and say it is referring not to the weekly Sabbath, but to the first day of the Holy Convocation, which follows immediately after the Passover. In other words, the Passover began, as verse 5 states, on the 14th day of the first month at twilight. The next day, the first day of unleavened bread, or the 15th day of the month, was a Holy Convocation, where no regular work was to be done. Thus, the day after this supposed Sabbath would be the 16th, and it would be on this day that the offering was to be presented. This is incorrect for several reasons. One, the feast now being looked at began with its own introductory words, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, There is thus no scriptural reason for tying the two feasts together in this way. Any such alignment would be incidental, not purposeful. Two, The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is not a Sabbath. Oops. Nor is it ever termed as such. It is a holy convocation. No work of any kind was ever to be conducted on a Sabbath. However, the preparation of food, something not allowed on a Sabbath, was allowed on this particular day according to Exodus 12, verse 16. Oops again. Further, three, all yeast was to be removed from the house on this same day another work which would not be authorized on a Sabbath. Oops. Four, if the day now in question was a weekly Sabbath following the Holy Convocation, which would occur every seventh year or so, 
than the people, if not priests, bringing this sheaf to the temple on that weekly Sabbath day would be a violation of that Sabbath, which was now being observed. But Leviticus 23, verse 3 was specifically placed first in order of the feasts to show that no feast celebration was to interfere with the regular weekly Sabbath. But this would have to be the case if the Sabbath referred to in this verse was the holy convocation referred to in the previous feast. One more oops, it is not. I'm sad, you see, for the Pharisee, because he failed to exegete carefully. He did contemplate his scripture improperly. The correct answer is that this is a weekly Sabbath, which would fall into the time of the harvest season, when the first grain became ripe, whenever that occurred. As the Passover is during this season, it would more often than not occur on the day after whatever weekly Sabbath occurred during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Why is this so important to understand? It is because when this is taken incorrectly, as has been done continuously by modern scholars, it causes the timeline of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection to be improperly manipulated. It introduces a false reading of Scripture and thus a false rendering of the Passion Week timeline. It may seem like hair-splitting to worry about this, but the timeline of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection is so carefully detailed by the Lord that he really, really wants us to not botch it up when we look at it. This is certain. Verse 12, And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year. On the same day as the waving of the sheaf, a kabess or male of the first year was to be offered. The first time the kabess was mentioned was in the initial instructions for the Passover found in Exodus 12, verse 5. The word comes from an unused root meaning to dominate. It is a ram just old enough to butt. Being in its first year implies innocence, but there is more. Verse 12 going on without blemish. There was to be no defect. It was to be perfect in all ways. Verse 12 going on as a burnt offering to the Lord. A burnt offering is one which signifies a life dedicated wholly to the Lord. The entire animal is burnt up as a sweet smelling aroma to Jehovah. Verse 13, its grain offering shall be two tenths of an ephah of fine flour. Along with the lamb was to be a grain offering of solet, or fine flour. This is from an unused root, meaning to strip flour as chipped off, and thus fine. It is generally considered, even when not specifically stated, that wheat was the flour used in such an offering. It would be the best of things offered to the greatest of beings, meaning the creator. Normally, a grain offering along with an animal would be one-tenth of an ephah of flour, but this one requires two The reason is probably because it being a harvest feast, it implies greater liberality in the anticipation of a great harvest ahead. One-tenth would be the regular offering, and the second would be in anticipation of the plenty which lay ahead. Along with any grain offering, frankincense was also offered, though not stated here. Verse 13 continues, mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma. The grain offering was to be balal, or mixed with oil. When it was properly prepared, it was to be made an offering by fire to the Lord, as it says, for a sweet aroma. Verse 13 continues, and its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hen. The only three times that the nesek, or drink offerings, are mentioned in all of the book of Leviticus are right here in this chapter. This is the first of them. The word means to cover. The idea is that when the drink offering is poured out, it will cover that onto which it is poured. The fourth part of wine was the standard amount of the drink offering. That's found back in Exodus 29. 
as this is not the time of the vintage harvest, the same amount as normal was offered. Verse 14, you shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. The prohibition against partaking of any of the produce of the field is given. Not until the first fruits is offered were any of these things to be eaten by the people, implying from the new harvest. Kali or parched grain is introduced here. It is rather rare being seen only six times in the whole Bible. It is roasted grain. Along with bread, no parched grain or fresh grain was to be eaten until the right was accomplished. Verse 14 finishes our verses today with, It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. The words here are all-encompassing, but they must be taken in the context of greater biblical themes. Chukat olam, or a statute forever, does not mean forever and to eternity. Olam simply means to the vanishing point. This was to be a statute forever until the symbolism was fulfilled in Christ. Throughout all your generations means that it was to be continuous and without interruption. All your dwellings means that it applies to all Israel without exception. This is, after all, a feast of the Lord. It was an annual anticipatory look to the time when Jesus Christ would come and fulfill it. At that time, the shadow would become substance. A sheaf of grain brought to the Lord. It was the first cut down in the field. Our duty in presenting it, we have not ignored. Now it is hoped that our land will greatly yield. When presented, the sheaf is waved, vibrant and alive. The Lord has accepted it as the best of the field. The harvest will be abundant. We shall surely thrive. Yes, it is hoped that our land will greatly yield. The sheaf surely represents all that will follow it. There will be the most magnificent harvest from the field. All will be like the first, not a stock unfit. Surely because of the first fruits, our land will greatly yield. Our second thought today is fulfilled in Christ. As was noted, this was a feast only intended to be observed by Israel in the land which the Lord gave to his people. So much for people observing it today. It doesn't apply, nor can this precept be met by the people of the church in any way, shape, or form. It is absurd to even consider mandating the observance of this feast during the Gentile-led church age. The omer, or sheaf, was to be the first ripe grain of the harvest. However, the term reshit indicates more than simply the first, but the best, the preeminent, the head. The word is singular. One sheaf is presented. Each of these concepts speaks of Christ. He is the one, preeminent, first, and best. As we saw, though not specifically stated, this sheaf is of the barley crop. It is the crop of the poor people. Paul points us to the significance of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 with these words. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Further, it is the crop of hairy ears, signifying a likeness to sinful man. This is reflected in Paul's words of Romans chapter 8. He said, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This grain is cut down or harvested and then presented to the Lord. As I noted, it was to be waved by the priest before the Lord. The grain which had been cut down is caused to move. 
Vibrancy is seen, and the semblance of life is found in it. It is the priest who conducts this. Thus we have a picture of Christ, our true high priest, causing this preeminent sheaf to be vibrant before the Lord. It is the resurrection, where life reanimates that which was cut down. To see the fulfilled symbolism of this, we need go no further than 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul writes this, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ was dead. He was cut down, but he was brought back from the dead, having arisen, filled with vibrancy before the Lord. As there is but one sheaf, it signifies that Christ is the one and only representative of or means of future resurrection. He is the one and only mediator, the one and only example for emulation. And yet, a sheaf is composed of many stalks, and so this indicates the fullness of the work of Christ that he accomplished. Every aspect of Christ the man was cut down and buried, but in his resurrection, all of who he was was resurrected. But in this verse, Paul shows us that this is not the end of the story. He uses the term aparche, or firstfruits, which is also a singular noun. He is the first, but Paul continues by saying, of those who have fallen asleep. This is why the Hebrew of verse 11 says, so that you may be accepted. It is in the plural, speaking of those who are accepted because of the first fruits, Christ. It is Christ's resurrection, then, that justifies us and thus guarantees our resurrection as well. This is seen first in Paul's words of Romans chapter 4. He says there, It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Christ died for our sins, seen in his atoning death, and he was raised for our justification. Once justified, Paul continues to explain what will occur because of this. Again, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. After noting what was to be done, the words then tell when it was to be done. It was to be on the day after the Sabbath. I went into painful detail explaining why the term the Sabbath means a weekly Sabbath and nothing else. It does not in any way point to the holy convocation of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The reason this is important, as I said, is because of the timeline of Christ's passion. In Luke 23, we read the following. Then he took it down, meaning the body of Jesus, wrapped it in linen and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever been laid before. That day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. No doubt this is speaking of a Sabbath, not a convocation. The term Sabbath is specific. However, John says the following, Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The reason why this was a high day was because the holy convocation and the regular Sabbath occurred on the same day, not because the holy convocation is a Sabbath day. As I said, any such alignment would be incidental, not purposeful. And this was correct for about 1,500 years. Anytime the two lined up, it was an incidental occurrence. However, for it to be lined up when Christ would suffer and die was purposeful. It was God's intent that Christ would die on a Friday and raise on a Sunday. 
The types and pictures found in the Old Testament, which he fulfills, are many. In the end, God's divine selection caused that particular Sabbath to be a high day in order to accomplish this. Next, we were instructed on the burnt offering, a kabes or lamb. The word signifies to dominate. It is Christ who dominates all, verified by the resurrection. He has gained the victory over death. As Paul says again from 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? There Paul is writing of our victory over death, but it is a victory only made possible because of Christ's victory first. As the first fruits, so with the entire harvest. The lamb was to be of the first year, signifying innocence. It is the innocence of Christ who is without sin, and it was to be without blemish. Peter explains the fulfillment in Christ from 1 Peter 1, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. This lamb was to be a burnt offering to the Lord. As we have seen, the burnt offering is as a life dedicated wholly to God, such as the life of Christ. It is a perfect representation of what he has done. Following the mandate for the lamb came that of the grain offering. The solet or fine flour is also a picture of Christ, the finest and the first grain of wheat. As he alluded to himself in John 12, verse 24, when he said these words, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. It is a fitting emblem of Christ, who is the bread of life, and the one who thus provides everlasting life to those who partake of him. Thus, the offering is an acknowledgment of this to God. That there were two tents instead of one speaks of the abundance of the harvest to come. It would not just be a single portion, but it is a double portion, which is anticipated, Jew and Gentile coming to Christ. This type of offering was to be balal or mixed with oil. Oil is typical of the spirit. It is a picture of Christ, the bread of life, completely infused with the spirit of God. And as is the first fruits, so shall be the whole of the abundant harvest to come. This entire offering was to be an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma. This is explained by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 with these words. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. As it can be inferred, the double portion of the grain offering points to the fullness of the grain harvest, which includes us. It should be noted that the grain which is offered came from God but it has been modified by man in the grinding process. Thus, a type of work is involved in the picture. It is a confession that the works we do are to be performed in Christ and are only due to him. We don't work for our salvation, but we work when we are in Christ. And finally came the drink offering. The drink offering is of yayin or wine. In the Bible, wine symbolizes the merging together of cultural expressions into a result the thing that ought to happen can happen, symbolized by wine. In the case of a drink offering, it signifies rest and celebration. A drink offering is one only offered in the land of promise, a land of defeated enemies. Thus, it is a land of rest. Only when rest is provided would the Lord accept the wine libations. All during the time of the wilderness wanderings, they were not offered. Further, a drink offering is poured out in its entirety to the Lord, even in the land of Israel. 
No part of it was drank by the priests or the people. This signifies that the people were partially excluded from the full blessings of the Lord while still under the law of Moses. This is what Jesus was referring to in Matthew chapter 9. He said there, nor do they put new wine into old wineskins or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Jesus was speaking of the law and of grace. The new wine is the new dispensation of grace to come. The old wine was the dispensation of the law. If one were to introduce the new concept into the old, it would not work because the two are incompatible. Only if one put new wine into new wineskins and received the new wine would the mind be changed. Only in Christ does man truly enter into God's victory and rest. This is why Paul could say in Philippians chapter 2, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's labors in the vineyard anticipated his victory and his rest in Christ. This is made all the more evident in his words to Timothy. Here's what he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. These things that we can claim now are because of what Christ has done. We have the victory and we rest because he first obtained it for us. This is the lesson of the Feast of First Fruits. He, our Lord Jesus, is holy, and therefore we who are in him are deemed as such as well. Again, to Paul in Romans chapter 11. For if the first fruits is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. In summary, the Feast of First Fruits is a picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is explicit by Paul in the New Testament. But it will be seen more fully when we look next week at the Feast of Weeks. That feast is based on the dating of the Feast of First Fruits that we looked at today. On a given day, but not on a day set according to the Hebrew calendar, Christ rose from the dead. From that momentous event, however, a specific event would occur 50 days later. Stay tuned for those exciting details. <laughs> Until then, let's close with the thought that Paul says Christ rose again on the third day according to scriptures. He didn't rise on the fourth day. He rose on the third day. Scripture testified to this occurrence coming, and Scripture is fulfilled exactly as it said this would occur. This is the most reliable and testified to occurrence in all of antiquity. No other event has such a vast and overwhelming body of evidence to support it. And more, no event has such a vast and overwhelming body of evidence to say, it is coming. Both before and after the event, Scripture and history testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is the most singular event in all of human history, and it makes possible the absolute surety that those who receive him will likewise be resurrected. It is the hope of the redeemed, and it is founded on the solid ground of God's infallible word. Concerning the Feast of Firstfruits, in Christ we proclaim, Feast fulfilled. If you haven't yet called on Christ, guess what? It's high time you do. Eternity awaits, and we're all going to spend it somewhere. And for those who know Christ, it will be in a land of wonder and delight. And for the rest, not so much. Settle your eternity today. It's a very simple thing to do. Lord God, I'm a sinner. 
I need a savior. I call on Jesus as Lord, meaning Jehovah of the Old Testament. He is the incarnate word of God. I call on him. I give my life to you. I believe that you raised him from the dead because he had no sin. The wages of sin is death. He came out of the grave. He had no sin. So he was qualified to take away my sin. Praise God. I believe that. And you will be saved. That's what God asks of you. Such a simple thing, but it's so difficult too. So difficult for us to just simply say, I need a savior. Humility before the Lord. Most people want to stand proudly before him and say, look what I've done to merit your favor. That ain't going to work. Not in the presence of pure holiness. Our closing verse today is from Mark 16. It's verse 6. He is risen. Thank you. Next week is Leviticus 23, 15 through 22. Great stuff in these verses when for Christ one seeks. It's entitled the Feasts of the Lord Weeks. That'll be our 39th Leviticus sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? That's, that's the best news in the world is that Christ can wash away every sin. I have a life lesson for you this week based on the Feast of First Fruits. I always try to give you one point that I want you to remember because you got 10 million points and you're not going to remember them. So just remember this. We lost our brother Paul this week. He died and he was buried yesterday. But he's going to rise again, right? He's going to rise again. So don't worry about that. We have a great hope in Jesus Christ. Remember that. We may miss the people that we lose, but it ain't going to be forever. Jesus Christ has made sure of that. Got a short poem for you today. It's called Christ the First Fruits. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These are the words he was then relaying. Speak to the children of Israel, and to them say, All the things I relay to you today. When you come into the land which I give to you, and reap its harvest, that which the land has increased, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf, so to you I submit. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf, so hear my word, a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil, so I say, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, so it shall be this way. And its drink offering of wine shall be one-fourth of a hen to offer it correctly. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. To these instructions, careful heed, you shall pay. It shall be a statute forever as instructed by me throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be first fruits to the Lord is Christ Jesus. He was crucified and buried for our sins, but he was raised for the justification of us. Yes, through the Lord, the victory he wins. And so, O oh God, we sing out great praises to you because of Christ Jesus and the work he wrought. Through him, marvelous things you did do. And through his work, we stand perfect without a spot. Hallelujah to you. Yes, again, we say it from the heart. Hallelujah to you for Christ, who to us eternal life does impart. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sure hope that we have, which is found in Jesus Christ. Thank you that 
what happened this past week is not the end of our beloved brother, but it's just a new beginning on the way to glory. And may that day be soon when the trumpet sounds and we're taken up to be in your presence. Wow. It's my great hope. I know it's the great hope of so many others. And we just long for that day. But we'll leave the timing in your capable hands, knowing that you are God and that you will determine these things according to your own great wisdom. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We exalt you. And we offer the Lord's table to you in honor of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.